will be in 7 first, but the majority of our time we're going to be in chapter 8. This is a heavy and weighty position to be in to present the Word of God, uh, to stand and try to accurately uh, interpret what God has said and then share it with you. I can't tell you what an overwhelming experience this is sometimes, um, especially in a passage as difficult as this. Uh, when we start diving into the prophets, uh, there's a lot more background and study that need to be. And so I hope it's encouraging to you, and I really pray that the Lord will uh, overcome some of my own failings in the study of this text and encourage you. Let's read what we're going to study first, and then I'll ask a question, and then we'll be off and running. I'll review for anybody that may not have been here last week. Start, please, in Isaiah 7. Chapter, chapter 7, verse number 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, or Rezin, we've said that before, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out and meet Ahaz, and forgive me for this, Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, as the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria, with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah, has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol, as high as heaven. Ahaz says, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Familiar now, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. We're going to keep reading. Just follow along. Verse 19 or 18. In that day, the Lord will whistle like this. For the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt, and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria, and they will come and settle in the steep ravines, in the clefts of the rocks, and on all the thorn bushes, and on all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds. Everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, 
Every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. I'm not going to ask your forgiveness, but we're going to keep reading. The Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Meher Shahal Hashbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Zeberechiah, to attest it for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name Mahershahal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away from before, before the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoiced over Razan, the son of Ramalia. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all the channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him shall you honor as holy let him be your fear and let him be your dread and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense a rock of stumbling to both houses of israel a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of jerusalem and many will stumble on it they will fall and be broken they will be snared and taken bind up the testimony seal the teaching among my disciples i will wait for the lord who is hiding his face from the house of jacob and i will hope in him behold i and the children whom the lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time. He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them the light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in the battle tumult and every garden rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for fire. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, 
counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice, with righteousness, from this time forth forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And that's the word of God. So the context of our theme verse and the familiar verses that come at the end of this section come on the heels of darkness and disaster. In times of difficulty and disaster, one question comes to our minds. When we're dealing with difficulty and darkness and dread and something is going wrong, the question is, in whom or in what am I going to trust? Who's going to get me through this? What is going to get me through this, this difficulty that I'm facing? Often, Often when difficult experiences are faced, people rush to religion. But in easy and pleasant times, God is frequently ignored, right? But when tough times come and God doesn't seem to answer, not only is he ignored, then he's blamed. God has put us in this position. Why is God doing this to me? Doesn't God care? And then the question is asked, is he really with us then? Where is he in my trouble? And in our sin and in distrust of God, we may turn to other hopes, other trusts, and a phrase I'm going to use a lot this morning, alternative salvation. Like even things like luck and chance and karma or others' advice, and we do that to our own destruction. Last week, I gave the long story of Ahaz, and I just want to review it quickly because some of you weren't with us. And the story continues today, which is why we need to be brought up to speed. The two kings of, the king of Israel and the king of Samaria Pekka and raisin. I kind of thought about this week. It's kind of like a salad. Pecan, raisin, salad coming down on Ahaz. That's how I'm going to remember him. Pecan and raisin. They're coming down, and the king of Judah, remember the nation had split. The king of Judah is Ahaz, son of Jotham. And these two kings wanted to come against him and develop a coalition against Assyria, that looming threat that is now in present-day Iraq. And they said, if we can develop a coalition, maybe we can fight these guys. Ahaz didn't want to do this. He didn't want to fight Assyria. He wanted to join them. And so when these two kings were coming down in Isaiah, we just read the whole thing, so I'll just point back to different places. In Isaiah 7, when these two kings are coming down on Ahaz, he is freaked out. Remember what verse 3 said, or verse 2 in chapter 7, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook like trees in a violent wind. When a wind comes through here and there's leaves on these trees and sometimes I'll be walking through and it's a heavy wind. You see these trees and we've all experienced that with these. That was Ahaz. That was his people. We are freaking out. That's probably what the message Bible said. We are just so in dread of these nations. So what do I do when the darkness comes upon me? In whom will I trust? Who's going to get me through this? And Isaiah is sent by the Lord to Ahaz and says, God will get you through this. Trust God. God is coming to say, these smoldering stumps will not stand. Remember I said cigarette butts? God's going to come and be like, these crummy kings, they're nothing before me. Remember he says, it will not stand. It's not going to happen. So be firm in your faith, Ahaz, or you're going to suffer. And Isaiah even says, God wants to give you a sign to prove this. Ahaz, in his false piety, I do not need a sign from the Lord. I will not test God. And because of that, it is immediately brought his destruction. 
And the ironic thing is the thing that he trusted in, the nation of Assyria, God is going to use that to destroy the nation of Israel. So the, what we want to talk about today is kind of the ramification of Ahaz's decision and what people who are in darkness should do. And I said it's overwhelming to try to, we're going to try to look at two chapters here today, seven and eight, and find out the answers to these two thoughts. So I want to put the message into two categories today. First, what is God's response to those who disbelieve? Okay, what is God, I know this is not great, but I, as I think through things, it helps me put these things in categories. What is God's response to those who disbelieve? Like Ahaz. I don't want to trust God. I want to trust something else. Remember I said I'm going to use this word a lot. Alternative salvation. I'm either going to turn to God to deliver me, or I'm going to turn to something else in my darkness and difficulty. And of course, the greatest darkness and difficulty that we face is starts with an S and sounds a lot like sin, right? Sin, unbelief, unbelief, sin, and death. That's our biggest enemy. That's our mortal enemy, sin and death. So that's the biggest difficulty. So who will we trust, God or an alternative salvation? Everybody's going with alternative salvations today, right? And that's, that's kind of what we want to symbolize here in this story. So God's response to those who disbelieve, and then secondly, the second category, God's requirements to the dependent, God's requirements to the dependent, those who depend on him and do believe. So God's response to disbelief, and then God's requirements to those who are dependent. Not great, but it'll help you follow through. So we'll start in category one. How does God respond to Ahaz and to all those who disbelieve? Just to follow up on the result of Ahaz's decision, which we looked at last week. We said he's going to trust Assyria instead of God, and then God, uh, Isaiah says, well, God's going to give you a sign anyway, and it's going to be the sign of this virgin conceiving and bearing a son. We'll get to that in just a minute. But what Ahab has chosen as the object of trust, God is going to use to destroy him. And that's kind of why I joked when it said the Lord will whistle for those nations. Like when you go outside and whistle for your dog. <whistles> I can't do it right now. My lips are dry up. You know, like God's going to do that. Come on, armies. He is going to use unbelieving nations, Assyria and Egypt, as a tool or a rod of his own anger to punish those who disbelieve. Now it calls them, and, and you can follow along, we, we won't read every verse again because that was the point of reading the whole section, but if you look in chapter 7, this is where we are, after he makes his decision, in verse number 18, this is where Isaiah starts to say, here's how God's going to respond now to what you did. He's going to whistle for the the fly of Egypt, and the bee of Assyria. Now, there's two reasons I think that he uses those terms. First is, is that when the Nile would flood, it would then be uh, inhabited with flies. It was known for that. And Assyria was known for its bees. So a lot of people like to turn to that and say, well, see, he's, the fly symbolizes Egypt, and the bee symbolizes the nation of Assyria, and these these, the fly and the bee are going to come down. But I think it's more than that. And if you look at the passage, it kind of explains what these flies and bees are going to do. Flies and bees are swarming, inescapable enemies. That's the point. They're swarming, inescapable enemies. In other words, there will be no getting away from what punishment God is sending. Just to look at the verse one more time, uh, chapter 7, uh, verse number uh, boy, um, it, it, it's even going to go to the place where they want to hide. This is verse number uh, 19. They will all come and settle in the steep ravines. There won't be any getting away there. 
They will settle in the clefts of the rock. That sounds like a good place to hide. Let's go to some caves. The Assyrians won't find us there. No, like bees and flies, they will find you and destroy you. They will go up in the thorn bushes and all the pastures. The idea here is, in verse number 19 and following, that the judgment of God who seeks alternate deliverers, the judgment of God on those who seek alternate salvations will be complete and inescapable. There's no getting away from it. What Ahab relied on, God will retaliate with. Alternate salvations never will allow for escape. And this will be a humiliating defeat. I like how God words it in verse number 20. He says he's going to use a hired razor to come down and shave their head. The reason he says hired razor is because that's who Ahaz was hiring to help him. He says, well, I'm going to use that king that you were going to use. This is all in verse uh, 20. I'm going to use that king, and he's going to come shave your head and the hair of your feet. That's just a euphemism, meaning the hair of the entire body, the humiliation and disgrace that that would would bring, and also the beard, the badge of honor for the people, the beard. That's coming off too. And and the idea here is is that there's going to be, I don't believe that it's necessarily they're going to line them up and shave them all. I think it's the idea, the symbolism of being completely humiliated and disgraced, and there's no escape for it. I'm going to bring those guys down, and you are going to be humbled beyond belief. Besides that, it's also going to affect the entire economy of the land. See it in verse number 21 of chapter 7. People are going to have a cow and two sheep. Well, that sounds great. And there's going to be an abundance of milk. You know why there's going to be abundance of milk? There's nobody there to drink it. They're all gone. The people who are left will have very few animals, but they'll give so much milk that nobody will drink it that it will actually, the Bible says it will actually curd. They, they won't even have time to, it, it sounds like, some people read this and say, oh, what a blessing. We're going to have curds and honey, and our one, one cow and two goats, this will be a wonderful time. No, it means there will be hardly anybody left. The land will be so depopulated because all of them will either be dead or carried away in captivity. Look at the economy in verse number 23, where it used to be a thousand vines and the investment of money, a thousand shekels of silver, those vines were worth. All of that land will become worthless. It will become overgrown with, verse 23, briars and thorns. You won't even want to go into the wilderness unless you're heavily armed, verse 24. You go with bow and arrow because there's wild animals there. The land that was once once farmed is now wilderness, and you only go out with bow and arrow because you're afraid of what might happen. There will be a loss of dignity. There will be hardship and, and loss financially, economically, agriculturally. The land completely changes. There would now be no protection. There would be no security. All of this is gone because of their disbelief. When anybody, this is, this is a scripture of truth, when anybody puts their trust in an alternate salvation, it always ends up to their own destruction. You get that? And again, we, we take that into the, our New Testament age and say, if you are trusting for help against your mortal enemy, sin and death, in something other than what God has provided in Christ, it will end to your own destruction. There will be no escape. There will be complete humiliation and punishment and suffering, and rightfully so, because you have turned away from what God has provided, just as Ahaz did. In chapter 8, verse 1, the Lord continues with this response, and now he calls Isaiah into the program. And he kind of starts talking like uh, it's like today's day. Take a tablet with a stylus. That's kind of a weird thing to say. Like it sounds like, okay, get out your iPod, uh, iPad, Isaiah, and start writing. But what it means here is he wanted Isaiah to post a huge placard 
That's what chapter 8, 1 is saying. Write it on a tablet, and the ESV says, write it in common characters. What God wanted Isaiah to do is, is write my message on a big poster, we might say, and nail it up and write it in common characters, which means it needs to be clear and understandable. In other words, I, I came to this point. God wants his message not to be missed or mistaken. Okay? I don't want anybody to miss it. When they walk in and say, oh, here's what God said. Like, you know, there's this, this huge sign. And, and I don't want there to be any mistake about what it means. I want it to be clear and readable and right in their face. I want them to hear this message, I say. Well, what is that message? Looking at chapter 8, the message is belonging to Maher Shahal Hashbaz. We kind of scratch our heads on that one. The message means belonging to or concerning Maher Shahal Hashbaz. And then, I'll come back to that in a minute, in verse 3, he goes to the prophetess and she conceives and bears this son. In partial fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. It's not a full fulfillment because she's not a virgin. We can see that. He, he draws near to her and, and, and went to her as kind of a euphemism for the act of marriage. And, and they, they conceive and bear this child. But it's a partial fulfillment of what he said. Because obviously if the sign is given to Ahaz as a child, Ahaz is going to have to see this sign. Doesn't that make sense? But it's going to be fulfilled, of course, later in Christ. We'll get to that. And when the child is born, his name is Maher Shahal Hashbaz. Say that ten times in a row, okay? Um, but before that boy can even say, Mama, Dada, so it says, Damascus and Samaria will be carried away. This child, Maher Shahal Hashbaz, is a sign of doom. There is a fourfold judgment in his name. Here's what his name means. It means speed to the plunder, hurry to the spoil. Those are the four words. Meher, this is my understanding of it. I might be wrong. Meher, I know the, what the name means, but I'm guessing Meher means speed. Shahal means plunder. Hash, hurry, baz, spoil. Speed to the plunder, hurry to the spoil. So, so you're, you're walking in to the town, or you're walking around, you see this thing. Concerning speed to the plunder, hurry to the spoil. What God is announcing is that when Assyria comes, the conquest is almost already happened. Because normally, when people are running to a battle, or, or they're being marshaled as troops to go to war, they say, hurry to the what? Hurry to the what? Hurry to the battle, hurry to the front, hurry to the fight. They don't even have to hurry to the fight because it's like the fight is already over. Hurry and just take. See what's being said there? Did I make that clear? Hurry to the spoil. It's like it's already there. Just go get it. The conquest is certain. So these people are walking in and say, victory is sure. They're coming to get our treasure. They're not even worried about the battle. They're just coming to fight. Now get this. Meher Shahal Hashbaz is a fourfold judgment. And in chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, you have a fourfold blessing. The wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, versus hurry, spoil, speed, plunder. Beautiful contrast there, isn't it? They're not worried about the fight. They're only worried about the spoils, the treasure. Victory is certain for them. 
These events would take place in a very short time before the child, Meher Shahel Hespaz, is even saying, my father or my mother. Now, it could be, some people wonder, is it the first gurgling? Like I said, dada, mama, is, it, is that the first point? Would be like within nine, 12 months, year and a half at the most? Or is it when he actually articulates the words, my father, my mother? Well, here are the dates, and we can leave it at that. In 734 B.C., that's the date when Tiglath-Pileser comes down from Assyria. Tiglath-Pileser III, remember, Tiglath-Pileser III comes down from Assyria, marches down the Israel Sea coast. Egypt comes up, and Israel loses Galilee. 2 Kings chapter 15, 29 is where that's recorded. In fact, good for, good for me, at least, to read that to you, just so you can hear what's happening. 2 Kings 15, 29, here's what it says. Remember, Pekah, Pekan is still the king there. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel... Tiglath-Pileser, king of Syria, came and captured all the land of Naphtali, Galilee. We're going to hear about Galilee a lot in the New Testament, aren't we? And it even says that in chapter 9. And Hosea makes a conspiracy lest they don't get carried all the way. But in 734, Tiglath-Pileser comes down, and in 732, Damascus falls to Syria. The child wouldn't even be two yet. Did God's word come true? The child's two. He might be saying, Dad, Dad, Mama. But he's, he's not articulating probably, my father, my mother. I mean, he's still very young is the point of Isaiah's prophecy. The word of God always happens. When we abandon the Lord and choose to trust in alternate salvation, we eventually will reap its reward for your own edification. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, 3-9 is indicative of this. God considers it right to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. When the gospel is presented, even as it will be tonight to our friends and neighbors, in a simple, loving, kind way, we say, you are facing darkness and difficulty. You are facing sin and death. And here is the deliverer. And the deliverer is... Jesus Christ, and it's Jesus Christ, next word's real important, Jesus Christ alone. You cannot trust in anything alternative. Or we kind of hear this when people have uh, big diseases, maybe a cancer or something like that, and they don't want to try the traditional method. I'm going to try an alternative solution. Okay, that you can, but when it comes to alternative solutions regarding the delivery from sin and death, there is none. And so if they do not receive this gospel, which is our prayer and hope, it's why we do this, it's why we love their families and bring them in here, Please receive the gospel. It's why you talk to your friends, neighbors, family members. If they do not obey the gospel, God is right to bring down the hammer on them, just like he brought Tiglath's laser down on Ahaz. This is how God always responds to disbelief, with punishment. He's right to do that. He's right to do that. Note back in Isaiah, where this beautiful picture of their disbelief again. The Lord is continuing to speak to Isaiah in verse 5. When he says they refused the waters of Shiloh and trusting Rezin and the son of Ramalia, and so the Lord will bring the waters of the river, capital R, the river. They refused the waters of Shiloh. Shiloh was a river that flowed from Gahan into the area of Jerusalem. Gahan was an important place in Israel's history. It's where David passed on the monarchy to his sons. So it symbolized Jerusalem as a city of faith, this, this gentle kind of flowing, simple stream. But instead of trusting that, which symbolized God and faith and all that, they trusted in Rezin and Israel. So God would bring the mighty river, the Euphrates River, 
and this is symbolic, of course, and the nations of Rezin and Tekka would be destroyed and punished because they had chosen to follow leaders who came to power, not by God's appointment, but remember how they even came to power, they assassinated the previous king. So he's going to bring these mighty waters. And here's a picture, okay? Ahaz is looking when he's presented by Isaiah this decision. Will you trust God? And so he's looking. This, the symbolism is you've got this gentle flowing water of Sinai, which represents death. Then you've got this mighty Euphrates, which represents the armies of Assyria. So you see the picture? Am I going to trust in this God who I can't see, and I don't know, and may or may not come through? And where has he been? The darkness is, or am I going to trust in this powerful, I can see this here. This, I'm gonna, I want to connect to that nation, right? And that's what, that's what uh, 1 Corinthians 1 says. The foolishness of the world is to trust in this, my own works, something I can hang on to and see, where the wisdom, it, it was the wisdom of God for us to trust in something like the cross that was foolishness to people. For the human eye, there was security in that, there was insecurity in that gentle river. <coughs> and instead, they trusted in something, an alternative deliverer. So what about the people who are left? What about the people who are left? There were some people in the nation who wanted to trust God. How does God inspire and instruct them. That's why I want to continue now in this second portion. What about those who do believe and are dependent? We don't have that judgment, praise God, look forward to. So what does God instruct us to do in times of difficulty? As I asked from the beginning, where should be our trust? Let me give you three, three thoughts, and, and we're going to wrap this up here in, in a few minutes. We, we ended in verse, with the judgment, in verse number 7 of chapter 8, where it says the Lord bringing up the armies of the water, the river, and, and here's what it says. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> this river, again, symbolically, the water is not really coming in. That's the symbolism here. The river will rise over all of its channels and go over all of its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah, the southern nation. It will overflow and pass on, even reaching to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Point number one out of these, I'm going to give you three very clear applications. If you trust God in times of darkness, yet, yet it's difficult, and there's because of the sins of other people, there's difficulties in your life, what are you to do? First thing, you trust God's presence. You trust God's presence. There's a beautiful, there's, there's really two pictures here that are given of the destruction. And the pictures are the water that is rushing in and the bird that is flying overhead. Did you see, did you catch that? In verse number 8, it's the water coming in, sweeping in, and the same verse, verse number 8 towards the end, it says, and a, and a bird will come in and spread its wings out over your land. Over your land, Emmanuel, over God's land. What does the water do? The water comes all the way up to what? It's all the way up to the neck. Now remember, it's not real water. It's just the symbolism. The water is coming up to the neck, and it's like, I'm almost ready to drown. But it's not going to kill you. And it says the bird is hovering over it's not going to pick you up and carry you away. So the destruction for these believers will come very, very close. And, and some of them may be destroyed. In the, but, but, the, but God is with them. Their, his presence is a comfort to them in the midst of the difficulty. When you feel like the water is rushing up to the top of your neck and the bird is flying overhead like a vulture ready to devour you and you're in those times of difficulty and darkness, what do you do? You trust the presence of God. And you know what you say to the enemies of God? You say, bring it on. Because that's what they say in verse 9 and 10. They say, strap it on, Assyria. That's what they say. 
Look at it in verse 9 and 10. Strap on your armor because you're going to be shattered. He's basically saying, bring it on. Do your worst. Let it come. Because we are resilient? Because we, we will somehow defeat this? What's the, end of, what's the end of it say? Where does that kind of confidence, almost arrogance come from in the face of difficulty and disaster? What's the end of verse 10 say? God is with us. So I trust the presence of God. You can do your worst. Get ready for the battle, it says. Verse 10, take your counsel because everything you devise will not stand because God is with us. Isaiah 41.10, fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I found out that was the most shared Bible verse on the internet this year. Isaiah 41.10. Do you think people are discouraged? Do you think people are hurting? Isaiah 41.10 was the most shared Bible verse. Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. Jesus' presence in the storm on the sea is what gave the disciples comfort. And then when Jesus was getting ready to leave, when the presence of God was going to be removed, the disciples are so worried and anxious. Where are you going? We want to go with you, John chapter 14. Because where I'm going, you can't go. Do not let your hearts be troubled, though, because I will send another comforter, and he will not only be with you, he will be where? In you. So in your difficulty, when the water is rushing in and the vultures are flying overhead and there's trouble and there's destruction, in that darkness, trust the presence of God. Number two, fear God's power. Trust God's presence, fear God's power. This starts in verse 11 and goes down to verse number 15. It says that the Lord came to Israel with a strong hand. This word means that that he's really encouraging Isaiah with this instruction and said to him, don't be like these people. The people who believe and depend on God should be completely different than the people who disbelieve him. Doesn't that make sense? And the Bible is going to say there's two specific ways that people should respond differently than disbelievers. And it's how they look at the situations of their life and how they respond to the difficulties of their life. That's all in verse 12. How they respond to the, to the situation in their life and how they respond to the difficulties in their life. Verse number 12. Don't be like the way of the people, because here's what the people are doing. They are calling this a conspiracy. Do not call what the people call conspiracy. The people are like paranoid. In fact, it may even be that they're including Isaiah in this paranoia. You know, that that these events are all happening to us because because karma is against us, or there's, there's a conspiracy against me. That's why nothing seems to be going right. God says, reject that. Because all of these things can be explained by the hand of God, even the things that are dark and difficult in our lives. In our troubled times, we may claim things like, everything's against me. Nothing's going my way. It's just too hard. You don't understand. People say that all the time. That's what they're saying here. Instead of trusting in the presence of God. Realizing God has brought these events into my life. In his sovereignty, he's brought these into my life. And he can be trusted and he must be feared. When we start wondering, well, all these things are happening because I did this. And if I do this, this might happen. If I do this, this might happen. And you're so paranoid about everything, that leads to greater fears and greater instability. Because now all of a sudden you're in, some, you're in the hands of some unknown power that you can't talk to or control. Don't be like that. Don't fear what they fear. Ahaz and others were so afraid of worldly pressures. He says, don't fear them. Fear me. Honor God. Fear the Lord. This is what it says in verse number 12b. Do not fear what they fear to be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him, honor as holy. Fear him. 
means to live in a constant awareness of God's presence and his holiness. Let your lives be governed by that. Don't fear lesser fears, lesser powers. God is the ultimate to be feared and deeply reverenced in dark times and as well as light times. People, uh, or light and easy times, people rush to God like they do when their car breaks down on the highway and there's an emergency and they just need the jumper cables. Get me, get me on my way. That's how people react to God in times of difficulty. Instead of relying on him at all times, and when difficulty comes, because there's a consistency and a fellowship with God, we can handle those things because we know him. We've lived in a constant awareness of him. Instead, when this difficulties come upon us, as they always do, now it's like, oh, I need the pastor. I need the church. Where are they? God is to be blamed in this. The pastor hasn't helped me. The church has let us down. And they look everywhere instead of within. In this way, God becomes one of two things to these people. He becomes a sanctuary or a snake. He either becomes his presence, offers an opportunity to repent and believe and enjoy his presence. To others, he is seen as a trap and a snare. This is all recorded for us in verse number 14. Depending on our response to him, God, though he is unchanging, will either be a place of peace and safety and security or become a stone of offense that we blame for all of our problems. We must fear his power. Third, We trust his presence, we fear his power, and we believe his promises. What is our hope? Our only hope is in the written word of God. I hope you believe that. So we wait for him, we hope for him. The temptation in our trouble is to turn to some other source. And in verse 19, it was the mediums and the necromancers. Probably that's not our problem. I I hope nobody is calling up some witch or wizard to get some sort of advice. And we laugh at that, but you know where we turn? We turn to the Heaven Tourism book. We turn to the nonsense that Christian book publishers put out because we want to have comfort and confidence. We turn to some sort of superstition or worldly advice. We carry charms in our pockets. We, uh, you know, maybe not us, but we, but we do ritual symbolisms. We do, we do all sorts of things, and Christians can fall into these type of things too. Instead of looking to the word of God for our, for our solid footing. It's the oldest temptation in the history of mankind. Did God really say? Satan started with that and he's still doing that. Don't trust this book. That's why he says bind up the testimony and seal the teaching. among the, Keep that word close. Because people are going to go to mediums and necromancers and try to seek the dead among the living. Right, is my dead is my dead person looking down upon me? Will you look into your crystal ball and tell me? Probably we're not doing that. But we're, we're doing some things. We're turning to other things instead of turning to the word. Did you hear about this? Did you hear about this situation this week regarding the Catholic priest who did a suicide funeral for a child in, near Detroit? Okay, he, we don't believe, I'm, I'm, I'm not using, all the points aren't going to line up here, but in, in the Catholic doctrine, it's taught that if you commit suicide, you go to hell. We don't believe that as a church. I want you to understand that. But the, 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 the headline on the news was family mad at priest for saying her child may be in hell. That was the, that was the point. Because the family wanted to come and hear their child was with the angels. Now, again, we're, we're using the Catholic reference there, and we understand that they're, they're out of it. But the father actually got up in the funeral and said, please stop. Please stop saying that. 
preach is totally off, right? But we can do that ourselves. Folks, I just heard, we just heard about a recent situation where someone also committed suicide, grew up in the church, had no fruit to speak of regarding a spiritual life, but everybody's, everybody's, we'll see him again. See, we, we want to turn to other things to assuage our, our fears in difficulty and darkness instead of looking at the truth. And, and it, would be, it would be dishonest of us to, to go elsewhere apart from this book. That's why I like when it says, when that starts happening, verse 20, go to the teaching, go to the testimony. If people are speaking not according to the word, it's because they have no dawn in them. They're dark themselves. You cannot go out of darkness with more darkness. Right? You cannot get out of your darkness by seeking more darkness. This is why it's so desperate to be close to people who are unbelievers because when God begins to smite them with conviction, we want to be there with the right information. Not so that they turn on Olstein or they go to the pop Christianity pop today, right? Popular Christianity, which is, which is Christianity light, which is not really a gospel at all. Any Christianity that is not offensive is not Christianity. That's why he's a stone of stumbling. They can't get past that. The gospel is enough, but, but the gospel has to be there at the moment the people need it. We must be like Berean believers in Acts who look to the word to see if what people were saying was true. Our hope is in God's word. We don't have to go to other sources to discover the meaning or destiny of our life. It is not hidden to anyone who will just look in the right place. If you are having problems, if you are having difficulties, your answer is here. I don't know how to say it any more clearly than that. The answer is here. And that's, that's what he says. Don't call it conspiracy. Don't say, well, you don't understand. Don't say this. Whatever darkness or difficulty you face, God has the answer in his word. And all who look to the earth, this is kind of our last thing, all who look to the earth, 20, the great news is next week we're going to have a great message because the light finally dawns and the wonderful counselor comes. This is all very discouraging stuff. But they look to the earth, end of, the, end of 822, they look to the earth and they find distress and darkness and gloom. Anybody who looks to the earth for answers that only have a heavenly solution are only engulfed in greater darkness. Why can't I get out of this problem? What is happening to me? Well, stop looking in the darkness when the answer is in the light. That's what Ahaz did. And he suffered for it. And the nation suffered for it. But those who depend on Christ find him to be this great light that increases our joy, chapter 9. Because the gloom is not final. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, promised in Isaiah 7, 14, is the fulfillment of God's promise, the bearer of our penalty, and the answer to all of our problems. And it is this great light that will swallow up our darkness if we'll just trust in him. When darkness and difficulty comes, who can you trust? The answer is, I trust God, but, I trust God, but, but this, this is a little too big for God. God doesn't get this. God is the solution to the problem. Trust his presence, fear his power, believe his promises. Our Father, we thank you again for this, this man Ahaz. What a, what a disappointing life, but an example to us on what and who to trust.
Help us not to turn to earthly solutions for our problems, but to the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Thank you, Father, that this gloom and darkness and distress that we face in this life is not final, and you have provided for us a deliverer for our sins. We pray that each one today would turn to that Christ for the solution for all of their problems. Life will not be without problems. In fact, Scripture says man is born for trouble like the sparks fly upward. There is going to be trouble. There are going to be problems. We may encounter some even this week. Father, when we do, help us to trust you, fear you, believe you. You are with us. You have spoken. You are holy. And you want to help us. And you are tender. You are a father. You are a you are a God, you are a counselor, you are wonderful, you are, you, are, you are everything. You are our all in all. Keep us from seeking out other sources of help, alternative deliverers, which will only bring pain and suffering. Help us look to the light, look to heaven, look to you for all of our answers. And we thank you for hearing us today. We worship and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take that uh, sheet we have been using in our worship sing our final song. If you have any sort of spiritual need, man, I'd love to connect and talk to you uh, after the service. Um, The point today, I think, is pretty clear of what we should take away, and we're thankful for what we've learned in God's Word. Thou who wast rich. This morning in Sunday school, we focused on really verse number two. Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake, becamest man, stooping so low, but sinners raising heavenward by thine eternal plan. We're going to sing a few of the verses. Let's stand together. We'll close our service with the singing of this wonderful hymn. Sing it out in praise for all Christ has done for us. Thou who wast rich, behold.
finish the message today. Isaiah, we've been in Isaiah uh, for the last four weeks, um, going over, uh, boy, it's ringing loud in my ear. Can you pull it back just a hair? Thank you, guys. <coughs> if you haven't been with us, I'll give you just a, just a, a quick overview of wh- what we've been studying. Um, and we opened Isaiah 2 as we get there together. You know that the books of history in the Old Testament and the books of prophecy in the Old Testament are not in order chronologically in our Bibles. Uh, so to know where the prophecies hit, you, you kind of have to look at other books or study a little bit deeper. And Isaiah uh, chapters 6, 7, 8, 9 come uh, specifically under the reign of King Ahaz in the southern nation of Judah. And we've looked at his character and the darkness and decision that faced him in the Syro-Ephraimite conflict. Um, it's been a real treat to see how God has placed these prophecies in the historical context of Isaiah. And we're going to kind of come to the climax today when we get to the theme verse for our Advent, uh, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. But King Ahaz was presented with a decision from Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 7, I believe. Uh, get the chapters. Uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 7 um, is when the uh, kings of the northern kingdom of Israel and the king of Syria residing in Damascus, Pekan and Razin. Remember the guys, it's Pekah and Razin, but we, I'm kind of referring to them as that because it's easier for me to remember. They came and they wanted to set up a different king in his place because they wanted to make a coalition with the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser the third, right. Not the second, not the first, the third. And Ahaz wasn't sure he wanted to do that. He wanted to befriend Tiglath-Pileser the third because they were very powerful, this looming threat. And so he resisted that. And in Isaiah 7, verse number, uh, sorry, I didn't grab my glasses, verse number 6, this is their decision. Let us go up, this is Pecan and Raisin, let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as the king in the midst of it. In other words, instead of Ahaz. Uh, and Isaiah comes to Ahaz and says, I know you're facing this situation. Isaiah 7 verse 3 tells us that he, Ahaz, and the heart of his people They were shaking like violent winds were, like trees shake in violent winds. They were fearful and afraid. They were terrified, and Isaiah came came and said to the king, listen, Ahaz, this will not stand. He says it twice. He says it in Isaiah 7, 7, and he says it in Isaiah 8, 10. He's saying this plan to replace you with Tabeel will not happen. And he says, will you believe this? Because if you don't believe what I'm saying, you will certainly not be firm at all. That's Isaiah 7, 7. Uh, Actually, it's a little bit late, 7, uh, 9. Ahaz instead doesn't wish to believe that. He'd rather trust in his coalition with Assyria than in what God has to say, even though God offered him a sign. I will give you a sign to prove that I'll be keeping my promise. He refuses that. And so last week we looked at the judgment that came upon the people, the swarming armies, the desolate land, the depopulation of the, of the area where, where they only have like one cow and two goats 
but they got so much milk to drink. Remember, they had so much milk to drink, it was curdling because there wasn't any people to drink it. And the, and the, the places where there were vines worth thousands of shekels, Scripture tells us, are now laid barren. And anybody that was going up there was going heavily armed because there's wild beasts and swarming armies, and God just brought this punishment and pestilence on the land through Assyria. Assyria marches down the coast. If you have a Bible map in your Bible, you might even glance there or do it some other time. But uh, the king of Assyria marches down the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. If you, if you think of Israel this way, you have the Mediterranean Sea, and then you have the kind of the Sea of Galilee. And he comes down through here. This is the area of Galilee right here, the land of Naphtali and Zebulun, which are going to be important in a minute. I maybe should have put a map up there. But he comes down here, and he, and he, and he just annihilates that nation. And God had said it would not happen. And there's people in Isaiah chapter 8, we mentioned last week, this remnant who are living differently. They're trusting God's presence. They're believing God's promises. They're fearing God's power, even though the water is rising to their neck. Remember the images that Isaiah gave? It'll be like the water is coming up to your neck, like you're nearly drowning. It'll be like a bird is hovering over you, but it will not drag you away. Why not? Why didn't God just utterly destroy the nation of Judah? Why did he say, it'll be like water coming up to your neck, but you'll be okay? It's like a bird hovering over you, but he won't drag you away. Why didn't he just say, enough is enough. The water is going to drown you, you losers. Right? I mean, God would never speak that way, but I'm saying, that. why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he say, you have rebelled against me long enough. That bird is going to carry you away, and you will never be a nation again. Why could God not do that? He made a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 that said, there will always be a seed on your throne. This guy wants to come and put Tabeel in there? Oh, no, 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 no. God had promised David in the Davidic covenant that his would be a lasting kingdom and no threat would stand against this. So when the angel came and visited Mary, a descendant of, and, and, and a descendant of David, and when he visited Joseph, a descendant of, both of them descendants of David, the child that is coming is that child that I promised way back then. God would keep his promise, and he would replace the unfaithful monarch, Ahaz, with the promised seed of David, who would be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But we're coming to that at the end. I don't want to hit that timing just yet. So let me make two initial thoughts here. Let's, let's read a little bit. This is the most important thing we could do. Let, let, let me take you just a quick read through, and then we'll, we'll read a little bit. Isaiah 8 ended with the people being in gloom, and look at the last two words of chapter 8, depending on what translation you have, says thick darkness. You may have a translation that actually says shadow of death. It actually might use that word in uh, chapter 9 as well, anguish, shadow of death, but, uh, or, or maybe 9 verse 3, you may see the word shadow. This is how close they are. Like, they're near death. This, this depopulation, the desolate land, the danger and threat. Remember the loss of dignity, they would be completely shaved, as it were. Now, they wouldn't be really completely shaved, but God, God said, in a sense, metaphorically, that the king is just going to come in and decimate you. But not completely, because I'm not done yet. Chapter 9, verse 1, after the thick darkness, but, great transition, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former times, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Hold for just a second. I just gave you those, those places. And if you did have a Bible map, maybe turn to it now because you don't have to just envision a map. But if you envision, if you envision uh, 
I mean, this is horrible. But if you envision stained glass number one as the Mediterranean Sea and stained glass number two over there to the right as the Sea of Galilee, I know they're not the same size, but this is where Assyria is marching in. And that's, that's Zebulun and Naphtali where the tribes settled. And that's the area of Galilee. And in 9-1, God says that place was decimated. That was the first place Tiglath Pileser came to destroy. And he says he brought those places into contempt, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. So that land which was decimated is going to be made glorious. Hold, hold these thoughts in your mind for just a minute. I'll bring them all together. Uh, glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, or Galilee of the Gentiles. Verse 2. Now we get to some familiar stuff. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness or the shadow of death, on them the light dawns or shone. You have multiplied the nation. Who's the you? Who's the you who's multiplying the nation? Who is that you? Who's doing this great work? God. God's doing this. You have multiplied the nations. God, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, God, as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken. God has broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David, promise he made, and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, we've led up to this point, this mountain of a passage. Because I would say most Christians know 9, 6, and 7. Many Christians are familiar with 9, 2 to 5. But they don't understand what context this is all in and what the people were really suffering now because of our four weeks of study we do. Now, let me make two initial thoughts before we get to the, the teaching. Two initial thoughts that are very important. The people are in darkness, which is a symbolic darkness, of course. Hopelessness. I mean, some of the words that were used, anguish, shadow of death, deep darkness, distress, etc. And we understand why. So how are they going to get out of this? How are they going to get out of their darkness? Initial thought number one. God must act in the darkness. So I'm just going to give you two initial thoughts. God must act in the darkness. In other words, people can't come out of their darkness, finish it, right, without God. People cannot come free of darkness, in other words, out of their anguish, out of their joy, out of their distress, unless God is the one who brings them out. People can't do it by themselves. And you know what? This is what everyone tries to do. They try, to, they try to come to God by themselves. They try to get free from their darkness and depression and, and, uh, and anguish by themselves. Notice that the passage says they simply see the light. The light dawns on them. They don't do anything to bring the light out. Right? They're walking. That, that term in verse number 2, the people who walk, that means they have been living in darkness, symbolic of the absence of the presence of God. They've been living in that. This has been their existence. And they don't just come out of that because of their own intelligence or, their, or some spiritual superiority they have. They say, Enough of this darkness. We want to walk in light. No, they can't do that. God is the one who must act. They simply see it. They, they, it's like they open their eyes one day and find themselves 
blinking in the light because this is something God is doing. That's why I pointed out the word you when we read it, and I asked you to say it, right? Who is the you that is doing this? Look at verse 3. Who is multiplying the nation? Who is increasing its joy? Who is doing all that? God is doing that. God isn't saying, oh, I'm so glad you lived in darkness long enough, and you finally came to your senses. You finally woke up, so to speak. You finally have seen the light. You know, a lot of people, you know, I was teaching my Bible exam this Friday, and the kids are all working real hard on it, and I, I teach in the math class, and so I looked over, and here's the math teacher's exam. And, and, and Dave would probably pass it, but I, I would have had a heart attack if somebody gave that to me. Minus YX equals 5J. I mean, I was like, I, I felt sorry for the children trying to study this stuff. And I know every, some people are smarter in that regard, but it's, it's not like someone could sit with me. I mean, someone could and teach me how to do it, and then I could say, oh, I, I've seen the light. Like I've, you know, No one can do that spiritually unless God acts. He is responsible for bringing this nation out of darkness, and it's symbolic of our spiritual darkness too. Everyone comes into the world in spiritual darkness, and no one can respond to the light of the gospel unless God works in their heart. Psalm uh, I believe it's Psalm 2, verse 9, or, or Psalm 3, verse 8, and Jonah 2, verse 9, or Jonah 3, verse 8. I might be mixing those numbers up. But both of those verses say salvation is of the Lord. Salvation, first to last, is all of God. What did we read about? What did we read about this morning, right? Um, in our thing of grace, we can even look at it here. That it's gra- God's grace utterly excludes boasting. And it promotes humility, love, prayer, praise, and trust in God. It is the grace of God acting in our darkness that brought us to light. God is the only one that can deliver people out of darkness. So think about this. You have people who are in your family or in your circle of friends or in your workplace who you just wish you could strangle into eternity, right? uh, Right now the burden for me is my own daughter Jessa, who is, I mean, she's eight. But that, that's my heaviest burden. And I, if I could somehow do anything to bring her out of her spiritual darkness, do you, don't you think I would do it? And you for the same, your loved ones. But there is nothing I can do which makes me completely dependent on trusting God to open her eyes to the truth of the gospel, to open the eyes of the gospel to this community, right? Because God has to do that. I mean, why are you here? Why are you sensitive to this light when thousands of others are at Meyer and Kohl's and Best Buy today because they don't, they're not satisfied with the gifts they bought. You know, and, and all of us are doing that to our Christmas shopping. I'm not saying that, but, but there are literally tens of thousands of people within driving distance to this place that are, are not here. Why? Is it simply because you have a little more sense or, or you just kind of know a little more than them? No, it's because God has drawn you out of that darkness. God is the only one who can bring that. I want you to consider... You don't have to turn there, but I would like you to consider Genesis 1 versus 2 Corinthians 4. I would like you to turn to 2 Corinthians 4 for just a second, because this is kind of an important thought for us. 2 Corinthians 4, uh, verse number 6. And the reason I had Derek read Psalm 29 this morning was because, and, and maybe you can refresh your memory, but but there was a phrase that was repeated over and over again in Derek's reading. And it was, Derek, do you know what phrase it was? The voice of the Lord. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. The voice of the Lord, et cetera, et cetera. Voice of the Lord, voice of the Lord. What did the voice of the Lord do, in think, thinking now just in Genesis 1, verse 2 and 3? 
What did the voice of the Lord say? First thing God says, let there be light. Remember, darkness is over everything. And God, with his own voice, commands that light spring forth out of that darkness, creative light. And in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul takes that that thing that God said in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and compares it to our redemption. Okay? Look at 2 Corinthians 4, verse number 4. In their case, that is people who don't believe the gospel. In the case of people who don't believe the gospel, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light. That's why they're out there. That's why they're out there. That's why they haven't given themselves to Christ. They're blinded. They haven't seen the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And now Paul thinks back to Genesis 1, and he even quotes it. For God who said, quote, this is from Genesis, let light shine out of darkness. That's creative light. He's also doing something else. He has shown, God has acted in our hearts, that is the hearts of people who have responded to him, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If anyone, if you have been brought to the, quote, light and a true understanding of who Jesus is and you've received him as your Savior, you know who did that? God did that in your life, and he is worthy of the praise and the honor and the glory. So God must act. Initial thought number two, going back to Isaiah. God must act in our darkness, but second point, God will act in our darkness. Can you imagine the hopelessness if God just decided not to act? Just left us on our own. If God had left us on our own, we'd all be hopelessly lost in the darkness forever, groping for answers and, re- and meaning to life. But if you notice in chapter 9, verses 1 to 3, all of the tenses of the verb are in the perfect tense, which means, they're, and they look like past tense to us, but it, it means they're written by Isaiah as if these actions have already happened. And they're not going to happen, some of them for 700 years, some of them still haven't happened. Because there's deliverance happening here. There's spiritual deliverance predicted. There's national deliverance of Israel predicted, and that has not yet happened. But Isaiah is writing as if it already has. Isaiah is basically saying, look forward to this, O nation, because it's certain. He's already done it. See it? Verse 2, they have seen a great light. They have? There hasn't been any light yet, but it's written as if they already have. He will make glorious. He has made glorious, 9 verse 1, the way of the sea. He has multiplied. He has increased. These are all past tense. They're perfect in the, in the original, but they're indicated here as past, as, as if they've already happened, even though they haven't. And the beautiful clue that Isaiah gives that maybe he doesn't even understand is that at the end of verse 1, he says, God is going to make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, or you might have in your translation, Galilee of the Gentiles. What clue is Isaiah giving us there about the Gentiles? Galilee of the Gentiles. What clue is he giving us? The, the gospel is for us who aren't Jews. It's a little clue there. He's going to be a savior for the world because the angel says, I bring you tidings of great joy, which will be for the Jew. Right? I mean, if it said that, we'd be like, we're, we're out of luck. Which will be for all people. That's the good news. And Isaiah gives us a clue to that here. But you know what's even greater? I mean, you, you wonder how people can look at the scriptures 
and, and not trust what God is saying and doing. So remember I told you, think back to our, our Mediterranean Sea and Dead Sea, and in the middle you have the land of Galilee, the two tribal areas of Naphtali and Zebulun. Now in Judges, I think it's Judges chapter 2 or 6, it, it tells us that Naphtali and Zebulun, when they came in there, the tribes, they didn't kick out the Canaanites. So, so God brings Assyria down as a result of Ahaz's punishment, and, and he comes, and Tiglath comes first into that area and just destroys it. They took the brunt of his forces. And because they took the brunt of his forces, guess where that light is first going to dawn? Where is the light of Jesus first going to dawn? In what? Starts with a G. Galilee. I want you to look at it in Matthew uh, chapter 4. I'm sorry, we don't normally look at other passages, but I, sometimes our eyes have to see it. And, and Matthew actually takes this passage from Isaiah and quotes it. This nation bore the brunt of Tiglath, and they're going to be the first to see the light dawn. The light would appear there first. Look at Matthew 4. This is so inspiring to me. Verse number 12, after his temptation. And you're going to see and hear familiar terms, okay? When he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into where? Galilee. And he left Nazareth and went and lived by Capernaum by the sea. Guess where? Zebulun and Naphtali. Same provinces as back in Isaiah 9. Everybody tracking that? So here's Jesus in that same area. And what's he going to do? To fulfill what was spoken, verse 14, by the prophet Isaiah. Verse 15, exact quote. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. I just pointed that out to you too. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, we talked about that, on them a light has dawned. God is just doing it to these people. They blink and Jesus is there. The light is with them. And from that time, Jesus began to preach. The very first people to hear this great news that God wants to be reunited with his people, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is those same nations that were utterly decimated by Tiglath. And 700 years later, Isaiah said, this is going to happen. And 700 years later, here's Jesus standing in Capernaum doing it. Right? God is fulfilling his word. How can people, well, 2 Corinthians 4 tells us, the God of this world blinds them to this truth. And you can preach it so passionately, and you can share it with people so urgently, and they're just like, what's the big deal? Right? I need a new DVD player. Isn't that sad? That just devastates me. Isaiah 9 again. Okay, I pointed that out to Matthew 4, Isaiah 9 again. Now, I want to review something briefly with you about light. Okay? Throughout the Bible, God's presence is frequently equated with light. Just a couple instances. 2 Samuel twenty two twenty nine says, For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God who lightens my darkness. And then more specifically in 1 John 1, 5, it says God is light. And so light is symbolic of a few things in the Bible. Now I want to give you the few things that light is symbolic about, and then I want to focus on one because that's what Isaiah focuses on. Remember, the people are in darkness, and now they're blinking in the light because God is acting in their darkness. He's drawing this nation back to himself because of his promise to David. Light is symbolic of three things. First, light is symbolic of truth. And darkness is symbolic of error. Error. Truth versus error. Psalm 43, 3. Send out your light and your truth. Light equated to truth. Uh, Job 12, 24 and 25, he takes away the understanding of people and makes them wander and grope in darkness without light. So light is symbolic in the Bible of truth. Okay. Light is also symbolic of holiness. 
where darkness is symbolic of sin. In 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16, it says God dwells in unapproachable light. In 1 John 1, 5, it says God is light. In him is no darkness. That means no sin. In John 3, 19, it says men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So they loved sin. They loved error. So light is symbolic of truth, darkness of error. Light is symbolic of holiness, darkness of sin. It's all scriptural sim- symbolism. Thirdly, light is symbolic of joy, where darkness is symbolic of sorrow. Psalm 97.11, light is sown for the righteous, gladness for the upright. Psalm 112, verse 4, light dawns in the darkness for the upright. Now, of these three symbolic uses for light, Isaiah picks one to focus on. Which one does he focus on in Isaiah 9? Isaiah, it's symbolic of truth, holiness, and joy. What does Isaiah specifically mention regarding the light dawning on the people? What is, what is the light that is dawning on them? Joy, no question, right? No question, look at it. Um, verse 3, okay, verse 2 tells us the light is dawning. God is doing the work to bring the people out of darkness, and he increased with joy. They rejoice. They are joy. They are glad. I mean, it's clear, isn't it? Super clear in verse 3, what is happening to the people? They were walking in darkness. Were they walking in error? Were they walking in sin? Yes, but Isaiah is choosing to focus on them walking in sorrow, And God's presence is going to bring them joy. For behold, I bring you tidings of great joy that will be to all people. So they will have joy. And and joy is a theme of the ministry of Christ. In fact, the presence of the Messiah brings the abundance of joy which will sweep over the nation. In the very first announcement to Mary, Luke 1, 14, the angel says, Many will rejoice at his birth. Luke 1.44, actually that's, that's for John the Baptist. Now in Luke 1.44, when Elizabeth meets Mary and they both have the babies in their womb, what does John do? He leaps. Why does he leap? For joy. Okay, Even, even before they're born, God is bringing them joy through Christ. Matthew 13.44, it says when the man finds a treasure in the field, he goes and sells all he has and with joy buys that field. John 15, 11, Jesus says, all I have spoken to you is so that your joy might be full. People walk around at Christmas, you know, and there, and there is kind of this sense of a little bit more of brotherhood and, you know, kindness to others. I mean, it does kind of, it does kind of rise a little bit. As soon as it's over, it's, it's over. People are back to their grouchy, gloomy selves. You know, there is no place in Christianity for a gloomy believer. A, a, a person who is a Christian who's always down and depressed is, is having a problem because that's Christ came to bring joy to the people of Israel and to Christians. Psalm 1611 summarizes it this way. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Isaiah says, in the place of your fear, in the place of your sorrow, there will be joy. Chapter 9, verse 3 tells us their joy is before you, before God. And so we say, well, why do they have this joy? Why do people who are rightly connected with Christ have joy? Well, all other joys mean nothing. Now, I want you to know, we're, we're, we're sliding into the end here. Look at the first words of 4, 5, and 6. Chapter 9, 4, 5, and 6. What's the first word in every verse? 4. Word of reason. It's a word of reason. It's like a because. Okay, so the verse 3 tells us, just summarize real quick. Verse 3 says, man, the nations are going to be joyful. They're going to rejoice with joy before you. Okay, so then the next three verses tell us why. Four, four, four. This is going to be the source of that joy. And I'll tell you, the main reason, just glance at it for a minute, 
I like, to, I like to draw you to it rather than just give it to you. So you're glancing at verses 4, 5, and 6, specifically verse 4 and 5. What? Don't say it out loud, but what is the reason for this joy? Why are these people going to be so joyful? What is the reason? The main reason, maybe you've got something different, but the main reason is because the Messiah is going to come and free them, liberate them. Okay, see it? Verse 4, the yoke of his burden. That may even be an allusion to the Exodus when it says Pharaoh made their burdens harder. The staff or shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, God's going to come and break that, just like he did in Midian. We'll say more about that in a second. And the boots and the tramping warrior and garments rolled in blood, all those things will be burned. So the reason for joy is liberation. We have The nation will be free. Okay? Now, what type of freedom? We can't, we can't tilt too far one way or the other. There are two types of freedom being mentioned here. There's the political and national freedom for the nation of Israel. We can't forget that. That's not, that's not happened just yet. But there's also the spiritual freedom that Messiah would provide. We do, we do wrong to tilt too far to either one of them. So we're going to emphasize both. For us, of course, who aren't Jews, it's more of an interest to us to think about the spiritual freedom. But he also has a plan for his nation because he made that promise to David. He's going to put a king on that throne, and that king is going to be his son, the Messiah, Christ. Okay? That's what the nation is still looking forward to. Their burden will be broken. He will come and he will break the yoke of all those who oppress them. And instead, he will place it with his yoke, which he calls, according to Matthew 11, verse 29, his yoke is easy. His burden is light. You've been burdened and yoked by these people forever. Take on my burden and you'll have rest for your souls. The illusion is, to, is made as to what God did through, the, through Gideon. When God brought deliverance through the weakness of people, and showed himself mighty when he, d- he doesn't even need people. He will do it himself, provide liberation, as he did in the day of Midian. He will bring an end to war and oppression, and he will not do it through further war. He will instead put to rest all that is built, or, or all that war is built on. You see in verse number 5, it tells us all of uh, warfare's, uh, Everything that is used in warfare will be burned. We won't need that anymore. There will be no more wars. Because the Prince of Peace will establish his own government. And he will, warfare and and anything that is needed for warfare will be unneeded anymore. Because Christ, the Messiah, will bring peace. National peace and also spiritual peace. Now follow this thinking in the words 4. 4 verse 4, 4 verse 5, 4 verse 6. Why are the nations going to be joyful? They will be free. They will be liberated, verse 4. Why will they be liberated? Because all war will end. How will all war end? Verse 6, the child is going to do that. God will not free his people with an idea, but with a person. And this child, even though in verse 6 and 7 he's not mentioned as a king, he definitely has a kingdom. See it in verse Nine, he will have a government, he will have a throne, he will have a kingdom. This king will replace Ahaz and other kings who have not been faithful. He will be born from human parentage, verse 6. He will be a child who is born, but he will be a son who is given. Born of parents, given by God. And the government will be upon his shoulder. The people's shoulders, which have been burdened, look at verse 4. This is a great parallel. 
They, will ha- they, have a, they have had the yoke of a burden on their shoulders, but now Christ, this Messiah, will come and the government will rest on his shoulder. He will bear the burden of rule and leadership. And this child will do the, the freeing of the people who are in darkness. And who is this child? We've got to wrap this up here. Here's what we'll be celebrating on Mass. His name, verse 6, will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Just think about these things for a second. Just briefly, just second there, because we've looked at him all month. He is the Wonderful Counselor. As he administrates his kingdom, he will give wondrous advice and counsel. He will have wisdom that the kings of Israel did not have, but instead were foolish. His counsel will be uh, wondered at, and his wisdom will be amazing. His counsel will, will go beyond that of human advice and wisdom, because, of course, he is God. This child comes to bring guidance to people who are in darkness. So many people are refusing this child. But he is the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. This denotes his strength and his ability. Not only will the rule of this Messiah be marked by wisdom, but it will be marked by strength. He will be able to accomplish all that he wants. And it also imparts godhood or deity to this child. He is the mighty, strong deity, God. I love the different facets that are mentioned here. He's now also the everlasting father, a tender, kind, and compassionate leader. You think back to Isaiah 40, verse 10, where it talks about him taking up the sheep in his arms and tenderly leading and guiding them. Most of these people who have intelligence and all wisdom and power and all strength, they don't want to stoop to help and be tender to lowly people. Yet this child will. Of course, he will be the prince of peace. He will perpetuate this peace. He will bring peace from God. He will give us peace with God, and he will give us the peace of God. And this nation, and this government, verse 7, will never end because he will sit on the throne of David. He will be the leader of the nation of Israel, which, which God still has yet to fulfill that promise. And he will rule it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore. And this is all going to happen because God is zealous to make this happen. That's what, that's what the end of the verse says. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God is going to accomplish all of this. No question. I mean, I looked at Isaiah 9, verse 4 and 5, or and 1 and 2, and said, you know, the nation of the Zebulon and Naphtali and Galilee, man, they're going to see this great light. And people for 700 years were like, right? Where is it? 400 years, God was completely silent. Angel visits Zechariah in the temple. Uh, The plan is starting. Angels visit uh, Joseph and Mary. Angels visit the shepherds. And all of a sudden, in Matthew 4, you have Jesus standing up in Galilee just like God said. And there'll be one day when he's ruling over his people Israel, and because he has also been a, a savior of the Gentiles, we are grafted into his body, the church, and enjoying all the blessings that this Savior has. And ruling over us is not some tyrant or some uh, hypocritical, immoral, proud conqueror. 
It is a wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, who did what? Called us out of our spiritual darkness and brought us into the, what does Colossians say? He translated us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his dear son. None of you did that. I did not do that on my own. Well, you grew up in a Christian family. You had it easy. You know what? God is the one who brought me out of darkness and placed me into the light. So when I am in his kingdom, his eternal, everlasting kingdom forever and ever, I ain't walking around saying, look at what Andy did. Saying, praise the Lord, hallelujah, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and honor and glory and blessing. For he has redeemed me to God, this wonderful counselor, mighty God, Prince Peace. Some of you may have never entered into this relationship. And as, as urgent as I would present the gospel to you, there is nothing I can do to cause you to turn from your darkness and unto Christ. And so all I can do is do what Paul did in 2 Corinthians 5 and say, I plead on behalf of Christ. Would you be reconciled to God? Last week, when I was giving the gospel at our, at our uh, children's center, there, there were quite a few people laughing. And I just became so grieved, and it, it made me think of Acts when Paul preached the resurrection and said, some mocked me. And, and I, I wasn't angry because, oh, you should listen to me and this and that. It just made me so sad that here this, this wonderful gift is being offered. Mm. And because of the grip of Satan and the grip of our own sin, um, we can't respond to that unless the Spirit regenerates us. And I thought, I, I thought this week a lot about that because it, it is kind of a, um, you know, when I preach here, that, that doesn't happen. People aren't having a laughing and stuff. But you bring people in in the community who, who are unbelievers, and it's an awkward and difficult and uncomfortable, pl- honestly, for, for people who aren't Christians, and this is, and, and it's an uneasy thing, and so we want to chuckle to make ourselves, you know, I, I get that. But as I thought about it more and more, and I prepared this, I thought, here, here's the thought I finally came to at the end of the week. It's like, that should be me. That should be me. I should be scoffing at the gospel, and the only reason I'm not is because God has drawn me out of that darkness. And so I pray for you today, if you are in that darkness, that God would draw you out. The truth has been presented as clearly as I know how to do, that we are sinners before a holy God and apart from his work in our lives. And, and boy, you know, the, the people love to celebrate Christmas and put out nativities, but then you start talking about the reason Christ was born. Right? We, we turn from this to the cross and people may even like to wear that jewelry because it's kind of religious. They say, well, why did he have to do that? He had to do that because of our sin. The, 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 the word that best summarizes the gospel is the word substitution. And we sang about it a couple times today. I, I should have I marked it when we were singing it. But we sang about the, the message of the gospel. Um, Come behold the wondrous mystery. Christ, the Lord upon the tree. In the stead in the stead or in the place of ruined sinners, hangs the lamb in victory. There was another, there was another thing where it said in, in my place as well. Um, I, I can't recall it right now, but that is the message of the gospel. It is substitution. It is Christ lived the perfect life that I did not live and should have. 
so that he could die the death that I deserve. And that's true for everybody. And the fact that Christ died doesn't save anybody. There must be a response to that. Okay, The fact of his death doesn't save us. He did it. If, if it did, then everybody would just be saved. You must now respond to that by repenting and turning from your sin and in faith believing that Jesus Christ is the only way to be rescued out of that darkness. Oh, a child is born, a son is given. I can't wait for the day we're in his kingdom together, praising him for all he's done. Let's pray together.